Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us for a recent sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. I'm Mark Likens. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, grace-driven church family right here in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to learn more about our ministry, you can visit us on Facebook or at harvestbaptist.info. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. It's my prayer that this will encourage and equip you in your relationship with God. Well, I want to invite you to turn to 1 John chapter number 3 this morning. 1 John chapter number 3. We're continuing to work through this uh, series, and we're, we're definitely more than halfway through. We have a few weeks left, and I want to look at the end of chapter 3, some new material we have not covered yet, but it's very connected to what we covered last week in the love of the brethren and the love that should exist in Christians for other Christians. And uh, I want to start just by talking about a hit song in 1984 from Tina Turner, believe it or not. Uh, the best song of her career, well, not best, but her most popular song, I guess I should say, uh, was What's Love Got to Do With It? I don't know if you've heard that song or sang that song. Maybe next week the choir will sing it for us. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, that'd, that'd be a surefire way to, for me to get fired. But uh, <clears throat> Tina makes the case in her song that uh, physical connection and emotional and spiritual connection I really do not need to have anything to do with one another. And she says, what's love but a second-hand emotion? And who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? And her argument is that love or uh, connection in an emotional way uh, really has nothing to do with the physical connection, which I would disagree with wholeheartedly and would just disagree with the premise of the song. But I'd, I'd at least like to take that and pose the question this morning, what does love got to do with it? If we look at love last week and loving the brethren, now John will say there are a lot of implications for our spiritual walk based off of this social test of love. But if you can say that I truly do love the brethren and, and that is being produced in me by the Holy Spirit of God, then there's, there's a whole domino effect that takes place, and I want us to see that. So let's look together in verse number, let's start with verse number 10. I want to read a couple verses and we'll get to the new stuff in verse 19. Verse 10 says, In this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever does uh, not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth his brother. So the test there is if you love the brethren, then you can know that you're of God. If you don't, then you can know that you're not of God. Verse 14, very similar. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Very clear. Now the implications of all this, verse number 18. My little children, let us love not in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandment dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us, and by the Spirit which he hath given us. So what John will say, simply put, is that love has to do with all of it. And as you walk, work through this passage, you'll see when he talks about our confidence towards God and our poise with our relationship with God, love has a lot to do with that. 
When we talk about our prayers and being confident and going to God and knowing that He hears us and answers our prayers, love has a lot to do with that. And we talk about our position with God, that we are of Him and He's of us. Love has a lot to do with that as well. So I want to start just by doing a, a quick cursory overview of love in the New Testament. Love is this major, major theme in the New Testament, and you see so many things about it. You would see in Matthew 22 that love is the clearest command. Jesus has asked, what's the greatest commandment? And it is love, right? Love God with all of your heart. The second commandment is just like it, is that you love your neighbor as yourself. He says that's the clearest command. We learn in the New Testament that love is a terrific testimony. Jesus says in John 13 that people will know you're my disciples. Why? By the love that you have one toward another. And you can have a Jesus fish on your car. You can have a bumper sticker that says honk if you love Jesus. You can have some witness wear that has a verse on your shirt. All of those can be a testimony, but those are secondary for sure to the testimony of loving each other. We learn in the New Testament that love is an amazing asset. 1 Corinthians 13 is all about this, the love chapter, right? Where it says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, it profits me nothing. What is he saying? If you have these spiritual gifts, if you're trying to do all this for the church, if you're trying to uh, help people, or you have great faith, so what if you don't have love? You can move a mountain, but you can't move the malice out of your heart. You need love. And at the end of that chapter, he will say, now abides faith, hope, charity, all wonderful things. Faith is awesome, and hope is awesome. Charity is awesome, but the greatest of these is charity. The greatest of these is love. It's an amazing asset. We learn in the New Testament that uh, there's a monumental motivation when it comes to love. Paul would say that the love of Christ constrains me. Paul, what keeps pushing you forward to suffer for his namesake, to go on these missionary journeys, to keep sharing the gospel, even though it gets you beaten and stoned and thrown out of these cities? What, what pushes you to keep planting the churches, Paul? The love of Christ constrains me. It moves me. It propels me. But John tells us in this passage that we just read, and you may not have thought of love in these terms, but love is a confidence catalyst. Love is something that should make us more sure and more certain and should give us confidence in our spiritual lives. So I want to talk about that. And I first want us just to see the poise that we should have if we love the brethren. It says in verse number 19, Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Verse 21, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. What is he saying? He's saying, verse 19, I want you to be able to assure your heart before him. I want your heart to be able to rest assured, to be at peace. I want your heart to have confidence when you are before the Lord. I want you to have a bit of poise in your spiritual life and in your walk. I want you to have this. Verse 21, be confident toward God. If your heart doesn't condemn you, then you can have this. This is the goal. This is what he's aiming for. I dare say that we could look at this text and based on it say, God wants you to have a confident Christian life. God wants you to have a, a heart that's not filled with doubt, that's not filled with self-condemnation. He wants you to have a heart that is filled with poise and confidence and certainty, knowing that your relationship is in fact sure. How? Well, he says, 
Hereby we know. What do you mean hereby we know? What he just said. The love that we have towards the brethren. That I see my brother has need and I do not shut up my bowels of compassion. I see that my brother has need and I don't love just in word and in tongue, but I love in deed and in truth and, I, and I'm provoked to good works and I try to meet that need and I love them in a, in a tangible way. If that's you and if that's part of your spiritual walk, if God is producing that in you, then let that produce confidence. There's a social test of love and if you pass the social test of love, then know I'm a good student as it were. Don't allow this to, to creep in and to say, oh, okay, so I'm saved because I, I love the brethren. No, 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 no. That's not the foundation for our salvation. But if we are saved, then those good works, as James would put it, that fruit does come forth. It does manifest itself, and that should produce confidence in us. Now, we all know something of what it's like to be on shaky ground when it comes to relationships. I say all of us. Most of us do. Most of us are old enough to have had a crush or to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a fiancé or a spouse. Not everyone in the room, but most of us would. And we know what it's like to see someone that we are intrigued by, we are interested in, we want to potentially ask them out for a date. There's something in us that attracts us to them. And it's very, very tender those moments where you take the risky business of asking someone out on a date, right? You are putting yourself in a very vulnerable position because they may say, nope, right? They may turn you down. They may shoot you down, and that will hurt. But you have to get into this volatile spot of asking them out on a date, and then you go on a date, and first dates are, frankly, pretty miserable most of the time. Because you're trying to assess them, and they're trying to assess you, and you're trying to figure all this stuff out, and is there real material here, and what will happen next, and you're going through all of this, but let's say that it goes forward, and then you have a second date and a third date, and now you have a relationship, and now you like each other. Eventually, there comes this time where you want to say, I love you, right? And then now it's risky again, because I'm going to step out, I'm going to say, I love you, and I'm just hoping they don't say, that's really nice, Right? I want them to say, I love you back, but I risk it and I get the biscuit, right? They said, I love you back. And then we love each other. And now there's the most vulnerable spot where eventually I have to get down on one knee and I have to say, will you marry me? And while there is a high degree of probability that they will say yes, because I've thought this through, we've had a relationship, maybe we've had some initial conversations, I've went and I've got a ring, there's, there's a high degree of probability that I'm getting a yes because I'm not just proposing to any old random stranger that walks by. But there's still, mm, what if they say, let me think about it? Like, that's not what I'm hoping for, right? And, but then they say yes, and then you get married. And now this relationship is founded on vows that you took before God and before the people. You didn't take these vows before. Now it's, it's settled in a legal way that you sign a document with the state that's more than just a piece of paper, but you enter into this legally, and now you are together. And what happens? What should happen? Now the relationship should have a new foundation and there should be what I would call relational poise that exists in the marriage that never existed when you were engaged and it never existed when you were dating and it never existed when you just liked them and maybe they liked you. This level of relational poise is new and is, is really spectacular, at least it should be. To know that we've committed ourselves to each other. We've assumed there's going to be tough times through thick and thin, for better, for worse, for richer or poorer. We were going to be together. Divorce is not an option. And now the relationship is at a new level, right? 
What the Bible tries to communicate to you over and over and over and over again is that you're not dating God. You're not engaged to him. If you know him and he knows you, and one of the tests of this is the social test of love, and the love of the brethren is being produced in you, then you know that he is the groom and the church is his bride and there's a marriage and that divorce is not an option for God, that he's in it for keeps, that he loves you, that he's committed himself to you. And so if you can say, hey, there's these birthmarks of a born-again person on me, the birthmark of loving the brethren, the birthmark of, of having my doctrine right and believing that Jesus is the Christ, the birthmark of a, of a moral life that's not perfect, but I want to keep his commandments. If those birthmarks of a believer are there, then I can step back, my heart can be assured, I can have confidence, and I can know that I know that I know that there is relational poise here with the Lord Jesus Christ, and that I can rest assured in his presence. I can be confident toward God does that exist for you because if you know Jesus he wants it to exist for you but there is in the middle of verse 19 and verse 21 in case you thought that I would just skip it there is verse 20 the goal is that our heart does not condemn us and we are confident toward God verse 20 but if our heart does condemn us you're hosed no that's not what it says if our heart does condemn us God is greater than our heart and knows all things all right, so let's break this down. And this is, I am so glad this is here. Because let's be honest, are all of us just super confident? My heart never condemns me? No. And if you have any sort of honesty at all, and you take even loving the brethren as the test, and you begin to think about it for any length of time, what will you discover? Okay, big picture. Uh, there's something being produced in me. I want to love the brethren. I want to meet the needs. I want to step up. I want to love my, my fellow church members. I, I want to, in tangible, practical ways. But ask yourself, are your motivations always pure? Let's say that you're not indifferent, that you're not unwilling. You do step up and you do meet the need. What are your motivations like? Aren't oftentimes your motivations wrong? I was doing this so that they would meet my needs or that I would get something in turn. Or, this is very common, the people that are the best at loving the brethren sometimes are doing it so that they feel lovable. I want to feel lovable, so I'll go try to love people as best that I possibly can. And the reason I'm doing this is so that I can say I'm noble or I'm a good person or look at me. And that, that goes sideways real fast. That's spiritual quicksand. For you to be loving someone with, with the intent of feeling good about yourself. What if you love them, but how much should you love them? Should you love them more? Okay, so let's, let's play this game. Who in the last 18 months has taken a vacation of any shape or form? You've taken a vacation in the last 18 months. Raise of hands. Okay, majority of the room. Don't you know that there are Christians, like in China and in the Middle East, that are persecuted? Why are you pampering yourself? Shouldn't you be loving the brethren that are over there in the Middle East or over there in China? Think about that last article of clothing you bought. Aren't there people that need food and need water that are your brothers and sisters in Jesus? Why didn't, why didn't you forgo that piece of clothing? Did you really need it? Really need it? Why don't you give it to them? Now, am I actually saying that this is, is true and that this is the right way to think? No, I'm not. But if you're honest at all, you can play these mental games all day long. 
And no matter how much you love the brethren or how much you sacrifice or what you do or you try to respond to those needs, it could never be good enough. Some of you struggle with a prideful heart that is, hey, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm great. Some of you struggle with a self-condemning heart where you're constantly analyzing, you're constantly looking, and you're constantly down on yourself, and you're constantly beating yourself up. And John's talking to you here. And saying, what do you do if your heart condemns you? And what he says is not, you're hosed. What he says is, take your subjective feelings and go above and beyond that to solid facts. That God is greater than our hearts. Remind yourself of the truth of the gospel. Remind yourself of who you are in Jesus. Do not promote your heart above God or what he has said about you. If you don't feel saved, it's not based on your feelings. Now you can look at the test and if you say, huh, I don't know that I believe that about Jesus and I don't know that I really want to keep his commands and I don't know that I love the brethren. Okay, then you may not be saved. Get saved. But if you're looking at the test and saying, yeah, that that does describe me, but I just don't feel saved. It's not about your feelings. God is greater than your heart. God is greater than your feelings. There is a perfect example of this in living color in Romans chapter number 7 and Romans chapter number 8 where Paul writes and he says, quote, Oh, wretched man that I am, exclamation point. Now you tell me, Paul having a lot of confidence or a lot of condemnation at this moment? Condemnation. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? He's, he is not happy with himself right now. But, verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then, okay, who's going to deliver me from this? Who's going to do this? God is. Then he goes on, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Now Paul's given words to something we all feel. Up here, man, I picture it. I'm on fire spiritually. I'm praying. I'm loving them. I'm, you know, I got this vision. I got this, this desire in my heart. I'm, I'm going to go share the gospel with, with my neighbor, and they're going to get saved. And I'm, I'm going to give and be generous. I'm going to do this. And with my mind, oh, I, I serve the law of God. But in actuality, with my body, I, I serve the law of sin. It doesn't, it doesn't always come to fruition, right? This is right on the hills of Paul saying, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do. What's wrong with me? Here's this moment of condemnation and his heart attacking him and saying, look, you you haven't got it all figured out. And this is all probably true. Next verse. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. What is he saying? He's doing what John is telling you to do. My heart is condemning me. It's coming after me. But God is greater than my heart. Let me remind myself that God will deliver me from this body of death. Let me remind myself that there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Let me take the truth of the gospel and try to preach it to my own self. Let me remind myself God is greater than my heart. Well, if God only knew about, about this, I mean, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not measuring up. I'm not good enough. I don't know that he would want to hear from me. All that. No, 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 no. God is greater than our heart. And it says, and I love this, and you would almost think like, what does that have to do with anything? He knows all things. It's right at the end of the verse, right? Thank you for reminding me of the omniscience. Like, what does that have to do with anything? Has everything to do with it. Because if you have a condemning heart, I can tell you that I love you till I'm blue in the face. And what you will tell yourself over and over and over again, if you knew the real me, you wouldn't love me. If you really knew the skeletons in my closet, you wouldn't say that. If you knew what I did this week, mm, 
you'd avoid me. And you can never, you can never feel love from another person. You will cut yourself off from that every time because no matter what they say, you, oh, you're just loving the mirage of me. You're not loving the real me. He says, not with God. God knows everything. God knows the real you. God knows the skeletons in the closet that I may not. God knows what you did this week. God knows what you're beating yourself up over. God knows your regrets and your mistakes and the damage that you've done. He knows the sin. He knows it. And he still chose you, right? I don't know how many of you uh, buy used cars, but most of the cars that I have bought in my life have been used with roughly 100 to 120,000 miles, something like that. And not always, but generally speaking, I would pull the Carfax on the car. Anyone ever pulled a Carfax before? You know what I'm talking about? Because you can't really trust the owner's words. Number one, they may be telling you something that, that's wrong. Uh, number two, they probably haven't owned the car the whole time, right? They may, sometimes they don't even know. Like, I don't know if I'm the third owner or the fourth owner or the fifth owner. I'm not really sure. It's been passed you know, down. And, and what's happened with this car, right? So you pull the Carfax and it will tell you who all the owners have been and the history of the car. You put in the VIN and here it comes. What's the damage? What are the wrecks? What are, has it been in a flood? Is there, is there fire damage? What, what has happened to this car? And then you can decide if you want to purchase said vehicle with all the information, right? What John is saying is remind yourself, God has the Carfax on your life and he's still buying. He knows it. He knows the damage. He knows the wrecks. He knows what you've done. He knows that it, that it has been passed from one person to another. He knows that you've been a mess at times. He sees it all, and he still bought. He still went to the cross. He still paid for the sin. He still shed his blood for you. He still wanted in. He knows that. And if God knows that, and God chose, and God saved, if he's done that for you, then when your heart comes to condemn you, remind yourself that your heart does not get to be elevated above the word of God. If he says you're saved, you're saved. If he says you're forgiven, you're forgiven. If he says you have a home in heaven, you have a home in heaven. Period. The end. Right? So ideally, you're in a spot where your heart does not condemn you, and you can have confidence toward God. But in a less than ideal situation, there's still resources there's still you being able to have confidence and, and say, I can stand before the Lord, right? On a side note, but a related note, it is important from this passage that you can just casually observe that your feelings may be true to you, but it does not mean that they are objectively true. What, what John is saying is that your heart may condemn you, but God's greater than that, right? There, there's facts and there's reality that is above and beyond that. And you need to know that feelings are real. I'm not discounting them or saying that they don't exist or that you're making it up when your heart condemns you. Or just feelings in general. Parents, know this with your teenagers. Your 13-year-old daughter's feelings are real. However, 13-year-old daughter, it doesn't mean your feelings are true. Now, your feelings may be true, but not necessarily. The heart is not the final standard, right? And this is... This is a very, it's a cultural moment for us as Americans because by and large, our culture has elevated the heart to the final standard. There has ceased to be these objective standards of right and wrong or morals or, hey, thus saith the Lord, this is right, this is wrong. 
and we all have to be guided by something. We can't be completely rudderless. So without objective standards, we have adopted as a culture subjective standards, and now I will let my heart be my guide, right? Trust your heart, follow your heart, those sorts of instructions, which are bad instructions. Because your heart does have feelings, it exists, it's real, but it does not mean that it's true, right? If you've lived life any length of time, you know this to be true, because at 14, you were convinced you would marry them, right? That person who passed you a little note in class, it was over. You were smitten, I will marry them. Ten years later, you realize, I was so foolish, my heart was so dumb. Why, why did I ever believe that, Right? And the parent's job is to help the kids see, okay, let's not trust your heart right now. That's not a good thing. You can't just follow your heart and trust your heart. We see this uh, a lot in the transgender stuff right now. I have no doubt that someone's feelings are real, that I am a male biologically, but I feel as though I am a female, or I I am a female, but I feel as though I'm a male, but feelings or subjective reality does not get to trump objective reality and it does not get to supersede that the heart is not the final standard that's not how that works we all have feelings that are wrong and are misplaced or are malicious or really detrimental to us but before we as christians point fingers at well there's that group and there's that group and then there's young people and there's this and there's that let's apply this spiritually as john is your feelings don't get the trump, God. That's not how it works. Well, I don't feel forgiven, but you are. I hope you get the feeling, but there's the fact that Jesus Christ paid for sins. Then there is faith that you can put in that fact. And if you put faith in that fact, it doesn't matter if the feelings or the magic pixie dust came or not. The reality is the reality, the truth is the truth, that if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are saved and you are forgiven whether you feel forgiven or not, right? So there's a spiritual reality to this that we cannot put our heart above the Lord. But John's goal is to say, look, if you love the brethren, love has everything to do with this, it should produce poise, it should produce confidence in your relationship. And then he goes on to say right after that, that it should also affect our prayers, And this is very normal. It's fitting. Verse 22, whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and we do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Do you think that you will pray much if you have a condemning heart and you don't have confidence before God? Nope. This is is a very natural domino effect. If I love the brethren, that should produce confidence in me. If I have confidence toward God, all of a sudden the prayer life should be opened up a bit more. It's very difficult for you to stand before God confidently and for you to commune with him and talk with him and pray with him. It's very difficult for you to do that if you're convinced that God is plugging his nose at you. And he's just putting up with you. He doesn't really want it, but I guess... I said I would in my words. I guess I have to put up with this some more. That's not going to produce a sweet relationship. That's not going to produce much of a prayer life. You need this confidence to be able to know, hey, God wants to hear and answer my prayers. 
put yourself in one of these two categories, and, I'm, and there's more than two categories, but not out loud, but internally. Put yourself in one of these two. When you think about your relationship with the Lord, and you think about how God sees you, do you think that he sees you as a dear child or as a pest that he has to tolerate? Now, there may be a middle ground somewhere, but normally it's one of those two. Either God sees me as a dear child or he sees me as a pest that he has to tolerate. And if you view yourself as a pest that he has to tolerate, you again? Shouldn't you have your act together by now? I'm pretty sure I already forgave you of this last week. Like, come on, get with the program. If that's your view of how God sees you, or all he does is come after you when you do something wrong, but he really has no interest in you, and how you're doing, how you really are, and what your real struggles you know, of life are, then you've missed it. You have no confidence in your, in your relationship with God, and that's going to hinder and affect your prayers in a negative way. You are a dear child. Remember how the chapter started just a few verses ago. Behold, what manner of love that the, that the Father would call us the Son of God, that he would bestow this on us, that he would adopt us, that he would give us this love. John is marveling in this. There's this dear child aspect. There's this confidence of relationship. And parents, you tell me if I'm wrong. If you have a child that is dear to your heart, do you want to hear from them? Do you have a desire to meet their request? You don't always meet every request. You don't always buy a toy or go to the store they want or give them exactly the food that they want. But in your heart, you want to. Why? Because you love them. They're dear children. You don't mind if they come to you needing something, but you also love it when they come to you not seeking your hand but seeking your face. I just want to spend some time with you. How are you doing? You love that as a parent. If God is your parent and you have been adopted into the family and we can say what manner of love that he would call us the sons of God, if you're a dear child, do you think God's different? You think he doesn't want to hear from you? You think he's indifferent to, to your requests and your needs and what you're going through? Not in the least. And what John is saying is take the test, apply them to your life. If you pass the test, then go talk with God, go commune with God, go pray. He hears, he answers, have confidence that he is going to hear. Don't say, even if it's tongue in cheek, well, I think my prayers are going to bounce off the ceiling. Well, I, I wish that I could get a hold of God like you could, you know, but I'm not a pastor. I'm not the front of the line. You know, grandma, she has a good prayer life and she can do it, but, but not me. No, 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 no. No. He wants to hear from you. Pray. This is why, if you remember, we started the series at the end of John, John 5, the very end of the book, and we learned that one of the big takeaways for a believer was John chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. It's the same thing. God hears and answers prayer. Lastly is our position. Our poise, our prayers, and our position. Look at verse 23. This is his commandment. That we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. How simple is that? You, you want to you wanna follow the Lord? Believe on the name of Jesus Christ and love each other. Really, really reduced Christianity right there. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. You can't miss that. 
God makes no bones about it. All people everywhere are called to believe and to pay homage to the name of Jesus. And if you don't do it now, you will do it later. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Believe on, on, the, on the Son, but then also love one another. And, verse 24, he that keepeth his commandments. Which ones? Well, he just told you. The people that believe on Jesus and the people that love dwelleth in him and he in him. That's saying that Jesus is you and you're in Jesus. That there's real relationship there. And hereby, listen to this, hereby know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us. So I don't want to gloss over this. This is, this is saying that you have so many resources at your disposal to have a life of confidence before God. You have the test that he's given you, and if you pass those tests, let it produce confidence. If that doesn't get the job done and your heart still condemns you, then remind yourself of the truth of the gospel and that God is greater than your heart. But even above and beyond those two things, you can know that you're in him and he's in you, and you can know this, he gives it right at the end, by the spirit which he's given us. Part of the Holy Spirit's job is to take the truth of the gospel and the realities of your relationship in Jesus Christ and the realities of your spiritual life, and his job is to actually pound them home into your heart and to make them living and colorful and vibrant and wonderful to you. And it's saying that you have the resource of passing the test and you have the resource of the truth and letting God overcome your heart, but you also have a resource in the Holy Spirit of God, and you put all of that together, it should produce confident Christians who do not walk around on spiritual eggshells, but who have a confident relationship with their God. Now, how does the Holy Spirit of God do that? Well, there's a few places I could take you, but I want to take you in closing this morning to Romans chapter number 8. and We can see this played out right in front of us uh, in Romans chapter number 8. Look at these two verses, verse number 15 and 16. Talking about the Holy Spirit that allows us to know that we are His. Here's what it says. This is a more fleshed out version of what John just condensed for us. We as Christians have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Not that. But we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father, or we cry, Dad, or there's this reality of relationship. Verse 16, the spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You get how profound this is, what he's saying? He's, he's talking to the reality of what is so normal for many Christians, that we are prone to be filled with fears. He doesn't want us there, but it's real. That all these fears creep up of, I'm not good enough, or I haven't done enough, or God's done with me now, or I'll never measure up, or whatever it is. And these creep into our heart, and the Holy Spirit, it says, comes to argue us away from that and to say, no, you don't have the spirit of bondage, you don't have the fear, you have a spirit of adoption, and you now can say, you are my father. I now view myself as a dear child. And it says, verse 16, that he bears witness that the Holy Spirit is the star witness in the court case that is, let's put it on trial, am I really a child of God or not? Do I really belong to him or not? And the Holy Spirit is the star witness that takes the stand and says, look, don't have doubt, don't have fears. You belong to him. You are in his family 
rest assured. And he takes the gospel and he pounds it into you for your own good. But that's part of the Spirit's job description is to produce this inner confidence of relationship with the Lord. And John is saying, if you can pass the love test, and this is real for you, then all of this should be true. Your poise with God should be, should be real. You should not be skittish. Your prayers, you should have confidence that he, that he hears them, that he answers them. Your position should be so secure in your heart and your mind that even when the doubts come in, that the Spirit of God and the Word of God can cast those doubts out and you can step back and you can stand squarely and firmly and say, I am His and He is mine and there's nothing that can ever take that away. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You are in the palm of my Father's hand and nothing can ever get you. You are adopted into the family. This is real, so act like it. Live like it. Don't live culture up, live kingdom down. Take the truth of this and live it out. But you can't do that. You can't really pray. You can't really go forward if, you're, if there's question marks and there's doubts and you're riddled with this. If you're the spiritual riddler, that's not a good spot. You're never going to be where God wants you to be. You're never going to get there. And he's given you all these resources to say, stand confidently in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we as his church be those people. Take a minute and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, right now in these moments, I pray that people's minds and hearts would not escape to lunch plans or grocery lists or tasks for the afternoon. I pray that, that they would hone in for a minute and talk to you. And Lord, I want to pray for this church. I want to pray for the people that I pastor. Lord, I, I want you to help them, to help us, to help me, to not live in guilt and shame, but to realize that you have taken that from us, that you died for that, that you paid for that. Lord, I pray that we would not be haunted by condemning hearts, Father, I'm not praying that we would be prideful and that we would be arrogant and that we would be haughty, but I am, I am definitely praying that we would not be plagued by this. Lord, that we would not feel less than. Are we worthy of your love and your salvation? No, we're not, but you gave it to us and you have graciously saved us and I pray that we would rest in that reality, in the truth and the fact of the gospel. I pray that it would inform us. I pray that it would help us to move through our spiritual lives with confidence and poise. I pray that it would help us to pray. I pray that it would give us certainty, that our relationship would be real. Lord, if there are Christians in this room who have turmoil of the soul, who do not have this confidence and their heart condemns them and condemns them and condemns them, would you graciously, through your Holy Spirit right here and right now, would you release them from this? Would you let them know that it's not up to them, that it's not up to their standards or their, their righteousness or their morals, but it was up to you and that they can rest in you? Lord, I pray that you would give us this. And if there's someone here that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today that they would believe on the name of the Son, Jesus Christ that they would put their faith and trust in you. This morning, I want you to remain in a spirit of prayer. And if you're a Christian, 
Would you thank God for the spiritual resources? Would you ask yourself the question, am I a dear child or a tolerated pest? And if you lean tolerated pest, would you say, Holy Spirit of God, pound the truth into me. Deliver me from this lie and liberate me with the truth that I am a dear child, that he loves me, that he cares for me, that he wants relationship with me, that I don't have to fax him my prayer requests. I can go to him and have a conversation face-to-face in relationship. If you're in the room and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, you're not a Christian. And by Christian, I don't mean that you've been a member of a church or that you have been baptized. I mean that you're really saved. If you're in this room and you've never truly put your faith and trust in Jesus, would you do it right now? He loves you. He died for you. He rose from the dead and he offers you salvation. He offers you forgiveness of sins. He offers you a clean slate. He offers you a home in heaven. If you've never put your trust in him, then maybe pray these words. This isn't a script, but maybe something like this. Just pray this. Just say, Jesus, today I put my trust in you. I believe in you. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose from the dead. And I believe that you want to save me. So Jesus, save me. Forgive me. Clean me. Give me a home in heaven. Like I said, it doesn't have to be those words exactly. But if you'll pray with sincerity and faith, he will save you. He promises that he would. Lord, one more time we come with grateful hearts that you love us and that you care for us that you do not desire to have some relationship that is distant or cold, but that is warm and affectionate and tender, where we can know you, we can talk with you, we can commune with you. We can know that you love us and that nothing can separate us from that love. God, if there's someone here who's not a Christian, do not give them peace. I pray that they would not rest until their soul finds rest in you. But for every Christian that is in this room or every Christian that is listening to this on a live stream, give us peace, give us confidence, give us poise. May that be who we are. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, church, I love you. I want to thank you for being here today. And we're going to close this morning with an announcement video. So don't check out just yet, two more minutes. And uh, if something is in this video that applies to you, then jump and do it. There's, there's groups, there's golf outings, there's all kinds of stuff. Uh, if it doesn't apply to you, then set it to the side. The next one maybe will. So pay attention to this, and as soon as it's done, you can be dismissed. Thanks for coming today. We pray that everything we do will bring God glory and be a blessing to you and your family. If this is your first time visiting, or maybe you just haven't been here in a while, we want you to know we're glad you came. 
One of our pastors would love to meet you at the welcome desk after the service. And if you haven't already received it, we have a small gift and a Bible for you too. Let's talk about what's coming up next at Harvest. Mark your calendars. The 15th annual Sports Classic Golf Outing benefiting the student athletes at Harvest Baptist Academy will take place on Saturday, September 10th at the Lynx at Spring Church. The outing is the main source of income for the sports program at Harvest Baptist Academy. All skill levels are welcomed and invited to sign up to play. Sign up and come out for a great day of golf, food, prizes, and fellowship. You can pick up a brochure in the lobby at the welcome desk. We hope to see you on the golf course. Awana, our midweek Bible club for children aged three through sixth grade, kicks off this Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. During our Awana clubs, children enjoy games, large group Bible lessons, and learn to personally apply scripture during our small group time. Check-in for our Awana clubs begins at 6.45. No registration is necessary. And if you would like to receive email updates about all things Kids City, please sign up on the church website. Have you ever walked out of church only to realize you left something behind? Maybe your favorite coffee mug, sweater, or even your Bible. Well, thankfully, some of these items have been collected and are lost and found and are waiting for you to come take them home. Be sure to look in the coat closet area to see if your treasure is waiting to be claimed. On September 18th, we will be hosting our annual Friend Day. This is a Sunday set apart to open our doors to the community, providing a place for getting to know one another, and of course, keeping all this centered around Jesus. There will be food trucks, bounce houses, and our annual cornhole tournament during the afternoon. So grab a partner and register on our website to be part of the competition. Harvest Baptist Church will be hosting a statewide abolition conference on Thursday, September 15th through Saturday, September 17th. This historic conference is the first gospel-centered, life-supporting conference in PA since the fall of Roe. Attendees can expect great teaching from abolitionists across the country, worship, great fellowship, and even a time to minister at a Pittsburgh abortion clinic. You can find out more information and purchase your ticket at abolishabortionpa.com. Thank you for spending time with us today. Remember to follow us on social media so you can stay connected with all that's happening in and around our church throughout the week. Until next time, have a great week.